And so I just want to begin with the question, is participation? And so if this applies to you, I would love for you to lift your hand and to keep your hand up for a little while. And the question is this, how many of you served in the military, enlisted or reserved? Raise your hands, keep them up. All right, all right. I see people here at Cascade in every section. Can you do something? Can you just give thanks for a moment for those? Now, larger group of people, how many of you had a family member that served? Mom, dad, sister, brother, one of your kids? Okay, hands up, hands up all over the place. I need to begin there today because uh, this series, Encounters with Jesus, uh, there's like uh, 40-some one-on-one interactions that Jesus had with different individuals, one-on-one encounters, one-on-one interactions, and today's interaction is really unique It's super unique for a couple reasons. Number one, it's unique because it is an encounter Jesus has with a soldier. It's an encounter Jesus has with an officer in the Roman army. Second reason it's an interesting encounter is that it's not a face-to-face encounter. The the, uh, interaction takes place through two kind of go-between groups where this guy, this Roman soldier, this Roman commander, officer, is in a pretty desperate situation, and he sends a group to Jesus to get Jesus' help. And so it's a, it's a one-on-one encounter with Jesus, but it's through a, a, a mediator. And so uh, let me just read the first three verses of this uh, story that we're going to jump into and that we're going to explore today. This is found in your Bible in Luke chapter 7. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he's been teaching. So after he's teaching, he entered, and there's the name of a city there. The city is, he entered where? He entered Capernaum. Remember the name of that town, Capernaum. Uh, There, and here's the military officer, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Now, that's, that's how we know this guy is not simply a soldier, but he's an officer. He a, has a position called a, he's a centurion. I'll say a little bit about what that is in a little while. Uh, but it says here his servant that he valued highly was about to die, which means this guy's not just sick. It's just not a long extended illness. The attending physician is looking at that guy and goes, yeah, uh, we're going to lose him. And maybe it starts out as an illness and you go, no, he's strong, he'll pull through. And then there's this downward spiral, and the breathing is shallow. And those who have watched things like this before go, he's he's not going to make it. How much time does he have? Two hours, two days, but we're going to lose him. Now, this, this Roman military officer, he's heard about Jesus, And this is where he sends a group of guys to Jesus in order to get Jesus' help. Uh, We read in verse 3, it says, The centurion heard of Jesus, and he sent some elders of the Jews, kind of Jewish community leaders, asking him to come and heal his servant. This story is really unique for two reasons. One, it's not with like a Jewish person in a village. This is an outsider, a Roman officer. And secondly, he gets Jesus' help through a, a go-between group, a, a mediator, a delegation that he sends. Uh, I'm excited about this for a couple reasons. One is I have no memory of ever teaching this story before. 
I mean, maybe I did, you know, 25, 35 years ago, but I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever preached on this story, and I am in love with this story. And so for me, it's like, it's like totally new uh, terrain in exploring this together. Second reason I think this is uh, exciting material is because when this guy reaches out to Jesus for help, we're going to get some instruction on what I would just call trusting God in a crisis or trusting Jesus in a crisis. And all of us are going to be there sooner or later. I mean, you may have walked in today here at one of our campuses, and you would say, dude, crisis someday. We're full-on crisis mode right now. But if you're not in crisis today, you just know that in a broken and fallen world, our day is coming, right? Your day is coming. And so things right now might be as smooth as can be, but you just know there's some kind of crisis out there. And part of the spiritual journey is learning to invite Jesus into a crisis and asking him to walk with us through a crisis, trusting God in a crisis. Now, I don't know what you're experiencing, and I don't know what you're about to experience. I know that there's a medical crisis, a health crisis. When a health crisis hits a family, it can become all-consuming. There are family crises, challenge with a son, daughter, challenge with a parent, sisters and brothers that aren't talking for one reason or another, and it's just, it's just really troubling you. Let's talk today about what it's like to invite Jesus into a crisis, a relationship crisis. It's a breakup, and the breakup has left you feeling sad and lonely, sad and lonely. What's it like to invite Christ into that? You can have a career crisis or a work crisis. Sales are down. You don't even know if your department is going to be around six months from now. You just bought a different house, and you go, I do not want to be job shopping in this next season. What's it like to invite God into the mess, to invite God into a crisis? So I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity today because all of us are going to be there at one point or another. I've uh, divided this story. We're going to look at this guy. We're going to drill down deep on who this guy is, where he was, what he said, what he's thinking. And I've divided this story. Uh, it's like 10 verses long, but I've divided it into four different parts. And part one, I'm just calling the setting. Part one, I'm just calling it the setting, kind of like who is this guy, where is he type thing. So let's begin here. Let's begin just with the Roman army. Uh, the Roman army had conquered Israel in 63 BC. Roman general, his name is Pompey, marches in with the Roman legion, surrounds Jerusalem. Israel falls to the Romans in 63 BC. So fully like six decades before Jesus' birth. Which means that if you're living in Israel in the first century, your country really isn't even your country. Uh, the Romans were dominating you. Romans had some kind of an occupying force in strategic locations, a military presence in many locations. And uh, you had to pay Roman taxes in order to fund the Roman war machine. Roman soldiers were resented. They represented the enemy. And so this guy, this centurion, typically would not be liked at all in Jewish culture in Israel. 
Uh, a centurion. What's a centurion? A uh, centurion was roughly over 80, 80 soldiers. So you had the Roman legions, almost 5,000 guys in a legion, like 4,800, at least in the time of Julius Caesar. A legion's broken up by 10 cohorts, roughly uh, 480 guys. And then you have something called a century. And centuries, you know, we have the word century for 100 years. They had the word century for 100 soldiers. And then it ended up filtering down to about 80, 80 men. And so this guy, the centurion, he's in charge of 80 soldiers. And he would have broken them down into 10 groups of eight, 10 units, 10 squads of eight guys. So just the, the, the Roman army here, highly disciplined, highly hyper-organized. And so uh, centurions, uh, you often didn't become a centurion until you had been active duty for like 10 to 15 years, and you had high responsibility, and you were better paid. The pay of a centurion is like you had much more responsibility, much more better compensation package than an average soldier. So this guy is a centurion. He's responsible for 80 guys, and he's stationed in Israel. But when we read verse 1, I mentioned the name of a town, and I said, remember the name of that, remember the name of that city. Okay? Test. <laughs> Any of you remember the name of the town that was mentioned there? Jesus went into... Capernaum, question, what's the centurion doing in Capernaum? Why is he stationed there with his men? And secondly, what's Jesus doing in Capernaum? So uh, just a little uh, map here shows the area. Capernaum is not in southern Israel near the capital of Jerusalem. It's in northern Israel. In fact, it's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. On the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, major fishing industry, fish are caught, they're salted, and they're shipped to other parts of the empire. But in addition to that, you see that little red line going down to Capernaum and then traveling uh, to the west? That, my friends, is an international highway. The name of the highway was the Via Maris. Via Maris means the way of the sea. It wasn't the only way from north to south, uh, but it was one of the critical highways from north to south. Uh, it's, you go up Damascus in the north in Syria, travel down the Via Maris, hit the Sea of Galilee, jog to the west, uh, to the left there, and it would take you down to Egypt, which meant lots of traffic going back and forth through Capernaum. Uh, second thing about uh, Capernaum is that it was right on the edge of a place where you'd like, in our terms, we'd say you cross state lines. There's a jurisdiction uh, change. And so uh, if you just draw a line north to south where the Jordan River is there, if you're in Capernaum and you go a tiny bit to the east, you move from the region governed by Herod Antipas into the region of Herod Philip. You go, well, what difference does it make? The difference that it made is they had a tax office there because any goods and cargo moving from one person's jurisdiction to another, you would tax those goods basically for crossing state lines. That's what I believe this centurion is doing in Capernaum. There's a tax office there, and where you had a tax office, you needed, how shall we say, a military presence. When you have a Roman taxes, you have tax evaders, and you might even have tax re re revolts. This is the occupying force. They're responsible for keeping the peace. That's what I think this centurion is doing at this critical place on an international highway on state lines, this traffic that goes through Capernaum. That's why I think he's there. What's Jesus doing there? Because Jesus wasn't raised in Capernaum. He was raised in a town called Nazareth. But Nazareth, uh, the way we would word it today, is uh, in the middle of nowhere. You would get to Nazareth if you were traveling to Nazareth. 
Capernaum, there's this road that's going through, lots of traffic passing through Capernaum. Jesus, rather than making his headquarters in Nazareth, which was kind of out of the way, makes his headquarters in Capernaum. One of the benefits is that whatever he said or whatever he did, word was going to spread up and down the trade route. So uh, early in Jesus' ministry, he goes to the synagogue, the Jewish house of worship in that city, Capernaum. Uh, He's teaching. A guy stands up and starts screaming like during the service. And Jesus discerns that this guy is occupied by some demonic dark forces. And Jesus expels this demon from this guy. And the people are like, can you believe this? He has authority over demonic forces. He's got, he's got authority over demons. And word spread. That afternoon, he leaves the synagogue service. He goes to the home of Peter, who would become one of his uh, key disciples. Peter's mother is sick with a fever, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and word spreads. That night, after sunset, people bring to him all these sick people and demon-plagued people until late into the night, he's healing them, and word spread about Jesus. So when it says here, when this centurion heard about him, that's what's happening. Jesus has come to his headquarters, Capernaum. Here's this Roman officer. His servant is about to die. And he grabs a bunch of Jewish leaders and said, would you please go to Jesus? And would you please, would you please ask for his help to heal my servant? Because he's heard the kind of things that Jesus has done. Uh, just uh, really quick, if you go to Capernaum today, it's just ruins, there's the old synagogue there and such. But just an artist's rendition of the city, we just have to remember that at one time, this was a living, thriving town at a major, on a major road. And so uh, what do we know about this guy? He's a soldier. Okay, what else do we know about him? He's an officer. Okay, what else do we know about him? Scratch the surface of the story, and we get into part two, and part two is just his character, his character. We learn a wealth about this guy just in three verses. And one of those verses we already read, it's verse two, so let's talk about the guy's character. It said this, it says, there a centurion servant whom his master, and you get two words there, whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. This guy values people. Dude, it's a servant. If he dies, get another one. It's not like that. He values this servant that is sick and that is going to pass out of his life. He values him. And I think there's something in every human being. I think it's a universal human need. We desire to be valued. To have our work valued. To be seen to be known, uh, to be valued. This guy values his servant. And so right away, you're learning a little something about him. But we learn a ton about his character when we get down to verses 4 and 5. And it says, when they, the delegation, came to Jesus, they, check this out, they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. They go, this man deserves to have you do this, heal his servant, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Friends, this is massive. Here's a delegation of Jewish leaders from Capernaum, and they come to Jesus, and they go, listen, you got to help this guy. you got to help this guy. you got to help this guy. He loves us, our people. 
And when we needed to build a synagogue and we were passing the hat, he threw down huge financially. He virtually built the synagogue. Now, understand something. This Roman officer got this reputation in a very challenging and complex environment because Roman soldiers were hated. They were the occupying force. They represented what had gone wrong with your country. And so these Jewish leaders, they come to Jesus and go, no, 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 no. You got to understand, he loves us. He's personally financing our center of worship. This guy deserves you to heal his servant. Here we go. He had won their hearts. I just go, man, how long did that take? Some of you will find yourselves in a challenging leadership situation where you find yourself in a position where over time, and it might be a long time, you have to win people's hearts. This can be in a work situation. This can be in a family situation. In a work situation, if you are invited to take a management role in a company that has a historic resentment for management, it just takes a lot of time to earn goodwill. And I think it takes time, and I also think it takes year after year after year demonstrating that you are interested in the goodwill and the well-being of those you are serving. But this takes time. And sometimes you win people's hearts. It's true on a family level, too. You might find yourself parenting children that are from a previous marriage or previous relationship of your current spouse. And you're going, hey, uh, I, need you to take out, I, I, I need you to take out the garbage. Hey, I need you to take out the garbage. Yeah, hey, well, you're not my dad. No, I'm not your dad, but you still need to take out the garbage. <laughs> and it's just complicated. And it's not a friendly environment. And those of you that find yourself in that situation, either at work or in family, just demonstrating that you are interested in the well-being of the people you're serving over time, and some, not always, but many times, hearts come around in time. This dude had won their hearts. That's huge. Now, there's an image that I would uh, like to give you. I, I hope it is helpful, and I was just thinking about this last week as I was putting my thoughts together. Uh, and some of, you, some of you enjoy boating, all right, either fishing, skiing, tubing uh, type thing, some big water or inland lakes. Uh, so this is a, a boating imagery, and it's, uh, it's a picture of a wake. When a boat goes through the water, a wake, and often the wake splits off and cuts in two uh, directions. And uh, I stole this illustration, I stole this imagery from a writer by the name of Henry Cloud. He's famous for a book he wrote on boundaries, but then he, he wrote a book on integrity. It's a, primarily a business, uh, business leadership book. It's just called Integrity. And uh, he talks about the wake, and this is what Henry Cloud says, everybody leaves a wake behind them. As you move through life, everybody leaves a wake. And he talks about the two parts of the wake that need to be in balance, and the two parts of the wake are these, results and relationships. Results and relationships. And most people have a leaning toward results. We get stuff done, and the relationship stuffer, or a leaning toward relationship, we just wanna make everybody happy and things don't always get done. And this even wake behind her life 
balance with results and relationship. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? There's people who go, oh my goodness, she's incredible, she's charming, she's such a peach of a girl. If only she would understand what a deadline is. Oh, he is awesome. He is just a joy to be around. If only he could finish a project in its relationship without results. And there are other people who say, baby, you want something done? Grab him. He'll get stuff done. But there might be a wake of carnage <laughs> in the background of wounded and hurt feelings. And most of us tend to lean more to one side or the other. And by the way, personally, I would be more results-oriented and struggle more with relationships. I have been told a couple times that in decision-making, I can come across as a little intense and overbearing. I don't think it's true, but I've heard that. <laughs> and this is not only true in my profession. You say, well, Jeff, the results are good. Yeah, well, that's only half the job. It's results with relationships that are intact and healthy people around you. And I struggle on the relation, more on the relationship side. But it's also true as my children were little. Any of you have younger children and you take trips with them? Some of you are just, oh, Jeff, just call us forward for prayer right now. I confess. <laughs> I confess. My kids, my kids had a term for the version of me that would emerge on trips and the expression that they used was vacation dad this was not complimentary vacation dad was not chill laid back everybody enjoying vacation dad was packing the car getting into the car getting through traffic in chicago finding a parking place getting checked into the motel unpacking the car they did not always experience me at my best in fact there was one occasion i remember where we were we were in chicago it was river north really close to that mcdonald's that they used to call the rock and roll mcdonald's for some reason we we're staying across from that and apparently my my voice was getting choppy get off the bed right now, or something. And literally, Chris invited me out to the hallway for a conversation. <laughs> I remember, babe, do you remember this? <laughs> I remember this. It was kind of like she unholstered her finger. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, thank you for bringing us here. You have a decision to make. Next time, either you come alone and leave us at home, or you send us and you stay at home. And I'm, but, but, yeah, yeah. either you stay at home, you know. And it was just bringing me. So all I'm saying is, is those of you with younger children or grandchildren and you're planning a trip, I think this image of the wake, just as you're packing, as you're checking in, as you're driving and going through, he started it, she started it thing, just go, okay, an even wake, results and relationship. As you enter into a challenging week in a company, whether it's large or small, family-owned business or large organization, and you've got meetings, just think, even wake, even wake, results and relationship, and trying to leave, because listen, listen, you always leave a wake of some kind or another. This Roman officer had somehow managed to do his work while winning the hearts of the leaders in Capernaum, and that's huge. To be a centurion, you had to be able to handle yourself in battle. You had to be able to handle a sword and handle a spear, and then in addition to that, you had to be able to handle your men to give orders that were direct 
not confusing and that were respected. And in addition to that, you had to win the goodwill of the population. And this guy seems to have nailed it. And he says, I need your help. And the religious leaders go, please, 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 please. you got to help this guy. He loves our people. He built our synagogue. He deserves this. And Jesus says, let's go. And they're heading down the road to his house. And before they get to their house, Jesus is met by a second delegation. Some friends of this Roman officer, they come out and they say to Jesus, stop. Don't come any farther. He goes, did the servant die? No. Is he better? No. Stop right here. What's going on? Part three of the story has to do with the guy's perspective. This is his delegation that comes to him now. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. A group of Jewish religious leaders from town, they approach you and they say, this guy deserves this, this guy deserves this. And the Roman officer says, you need to know something, they were wrong. No, I don't. I don't deserve you to have you come through the threshold of my house and enter my living room. My home does not deserve your presence. See, this guy had picked up on something. If Jesus has authority over demons and if Jesus has authority over illness, it's like the power and presence of God Almighty is resting upon Jesus. And this officer goes, how can I invite the presence and power of Almighty God through my door and into my house? And he just goes, I don't deserve this. It's like he's saying, if what they say about you is true, you are above me and you are beyond me and not just a little. Something that this guy latched onto, I think is good for us to remember and let's start here. Jesus wants to be your friend. We sing a song, it's been sung for decades, what a friend, what a friend we have in Jesus. This is true, he wants to be your friend, but never forget, he is the second person of the Trinity, the very son of God that embodied the power and presence of God. And that's what this guy's latching onto. I don't deserve you in here. In fact, I don't deserve you with me. The next expression he says is uh, this. Now, this right here, this is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. This is why I said to delegation, I don't belong in your presence. You're above me. You're beyond me and not just a little. They said, he deserves this. You need to know something. No, I don't. Now, this uh, story comes to us from Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, Luke's biography on Jesus. This is not the first time we find this in Luke's gospel. There's the, uh, there's the sandal conversation. This is Luke chapter 7. Go back to Luke chapter 3. This powerful preacher is down by the uh, Jordan River calling people to turn their backs on their previous lifestyle, to repent, to turn around. The guy's name is John the Baptist, and he's so powerful and so compelling, and so many people are flocking to John the Baptist that some leaders come to John the Baptist and say, you're him, aren't you? 
this Messiah figure we've been looking for, the one with God's anointing. Are you him? And John the Baptist goes, oh, are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. And this is what John the Baptist said. He said, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Am I the one? You've got to be kidding me. There is one coming. I'm not even worthy to get down on my hands and knees in the dust and unlace his shoes, unlace his sandals. John the Baptist gets it, that Jesus is above him, Jesus is beyond him, and not just a little. That's Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 5. Jesus is with a fisherman uh, by the name of Peter, uh, and he's been teaching, I think, from a boat that Peter owns, and he says, okay, now row out and put your nets down. And I, apparently nighttime was a better time for fishing than during the day. Now it's daytime, and Peter's got like, you got to be kidding me, but because you say so, I'll do it. Peter rows out, throws his nets out, and it is a, he, they catch the mother load of fish. And they drag in these nets filled with fish, almost sink the boat. Now, I need to tell you what I would do if I were Peter. I would get Jesus to sign a contract right then and there and become partners in my fishing business. I would go, all you got to do is show up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, do your thing. I've just bought four new boats. I have investors. We'll make a killing here. So Peter comes to the shore, and this is what he does. Peter comes to the shore, and he falls down on his knees. And I want you to see what he says to Jesus after this fish miracle thing. He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I think Peter realizes that he is encountering that the power and presence of Almighty God is resting on Jesus. And in contrast, he sees himself in his grime. And he comes to shore, and his one request isn't, let's go partners in the fishing industry. His one request is, I need you to leave. Just go away from me. I... We are not the same. You are above me. You are beyond me. And not just a little. And Jesus doesn't leave him. Jesus invites him to be one of his followers and one of his closest friends. And we have a word for this. It's the word grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Whenever we use the word grace, we are talking about something we did not earn and we do not deserve. My friends, that's huge. That's huge because over time, something that can sink into the life of a churchgoer, of a growing, maturing person is this. You know, I'm doing pretty well and you owe me. <laughs> And it can be lethal and it can be toxic. It can lead to spiritual superiority. It can be lead, lead to self-righteousness. It can lead toward a demeaning attitude for those that have not grown up as much in their faith or those that are growing more slowly. And I think there's just something that needs to latch onto this thing about grace and saying when Jesus came and gave his life on the cross as a way of paving the way to God the Father, this is something I did not earn and I do not deserve. That's what grace is. And here's this Roman officer, and he says, no, stop right where you are. Um, <laughs> I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to have you in my house. The presence of Almighty God in my home with me, I don't deserve it. You go, well, that's great. Now the servant's going to die. He goes, no. The guy says this. He says, uh, in essence, 
if you can heal my servant from a distance of about three feet, I think you can heal him from a distance of about 300 feet. You don't even have to show up to my house. Just say the word right there in the middle of the street. This actually happens. Uh, part four of the conversation is the guy's trust. He says to Jesus, but say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't got to be in the actual room. You don't got to lay hands on him. If the power and presence of God are residing on you, you can do it right from right where you're standing right now. This is extraordinary. Go, what led him to this conclusion? And it was his life in the military, and it was his military career of receiving orders and giving orders. And in essence, he's saying to Jesus, all you have to do is give the order. Because he understands what, it's, what authority, how authority works. In verse 8, he goes, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And that was true. This centurion was responsible for the Roman legion, and he had 80 guys responsible to him. And he says, listen, I understand what authority is. The director of the legion, the commander of the legion said, you will now be stationed into Capernaum. And guess what? I moved to Capernaum. And I tell my guys, you need to pack and be ready to march at daybreak. And guess what? They pack and they're ready to march at daybreak. I understand authority. If you have authority over demonic forces and authority over sickness, you can, you can do it right there in the street. You don't even have to come into my house. And then, and then he goes on from this and he says, listen, I tell this one go and he goes. And that one, hey, come here. And he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I say to this one, here's a letter, take it up to Damascus to the uh, commander of our legion, and he goes. I say to another guy, get Cornelius, tell him I need him immediately, and guess what? Cornelius comes running. Let's go back to the verse uh, real quick. Uh, do this, and he does it. I need you to get two boats, commandeer two boats, because it'll be faster for us to sail to Bethsaida on the other side of the lake than to march there. And by the way, when you commandeer these two boats, please adequately compensate the owners of the boat to maintain our goodwill with this community. I tell that one, go. He goes. I tell this one, I need you. He comes. I tell this one, go do this, and he does it. I understand how commands work. Jesus, right there in the street, just give the command, and my guy will be healed. Question, what do you think that did in the spirit of Jesus? What Jesus did is he stopped, and he looks around at the crowd that's around him, and he goes, did you hear that? Did you see that? Did you hear that? That's a Roman officer from the Roman army, and I haven't seen that kind of faith and that kind of trust among the Jews, among my own people. Jesus' reaction is in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was what? He was what? He was amazed at him. And so he stops. He turns to the crowd following him. And he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Did you hear that? Did you see that? And he is amazed at this guy's level of trust in this crisis. And by the way, the messengers, when they get back, the guy's healed. It's like, how long was I sick? <laughs> hey, what time, you know, did he recover? It was the time when Jesus, you know, said in the street... Have you seen this kind of faith? I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Jesus is stunned. Jesus is amazed at this guy's level of trust. Now, there are only two places in our Bible that I have found that it says Jesus was amazed. And one of them is right here with this Roman officer. He's amazed at his faith. He's amazed at his trust. 
that's one of the two times that I find that it says Jesus was amazed. Would you like to see the other time? Are you sure? Okay. The other time it says Jesus was amazed wasn't in Capernaum. It was right here in Nazareth, his hometown. When Jesus' reputation is growing and he goes back home and he's in the synagogue, probably the synagogue he was raised in and he's teaching and the people from his hometown go like, that's the carpenter from down the street, right? Isn't that, isn't that his mom sitting right over there? Aren't these his sisters and his brothers around us? And then he comes back as some big shot. And it says they took offense at him. That's what happens when Jesus comes back home. And in Mark chapter 6, this is Jesus' reaction. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The two times in her Bible, it says that Jesus was amazed, at least the two times that I found, was because of someone's faith and because someone's lack of faith, because of someone's trust and because someone's lack of trust. But what I think we should glean from this is there seems to be something in the heart of Christ that absolutely delights when we trust him in a crisis. I so don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what your crisis is, and I don't know what trust will look like for you in the crisis. I know this. It's not just trust that the crisis will go away. Often it's trust that Christ will see you through a crisis, not simply remove the crisis. I think part of trust is saying, I'm going through a confusing, challenging, painful time, but Lord, I trust, I trust that you're good. I believe, I believe that you're good, I believe that you're wise, and I believe that you can be trusted. Help me trust you now with this. Often the voice of trust that says, I don't think I have strength for tomorrow. The responsibilities and challenges of tomorrow, I don't even think I have strength for tomorrow. I trust that you will give me the strength that I need hour by hour and day by day. I trust that you will meet me there. I don't have the patience. I'm out of patience. I need you to fill me with a patience that is patience that I don't have. I trust that you will supply the patience that I need when I get to that point next week. I trust you. I trust that you will provide what I need when I need it. And you find yourself just spiraling into anxiety. I, what if I don't have that? What if I don't have that? What if I don't get that? And it's just the trust to say, I trust that you will, I invite you into the mess. I trust you in this crisis. Lord, I trust that you will provide what I need, when I need it. And anxiety can begin to dissipate. And control freaking can begin to dissipate. And something can come over your spirit where you sense that Jesus is walking with you and you are walking with him through that crisis, through that mess, through that time of trouble. I believe that there's something in the heart of Christ that just goes, did you see that? Stop, did you see that? She's trusting me with this. Did, did you see that? He's trusting me with this. 
my friends, I believe that it's something that God desires pretty much more than anything else. For me to trust him with my life, for me to trust him in a challenge. One of the most powerful, profound, and simplest prayers that you can pray if, like, crisis is, like, what you're in right now is just a prayer that goes something like this. Gracious Lord, I don't like this space. I don't want this space, and I don't understand this space. But I will trust you in this space. And I think there's something in the heart of Christ that just goes, yes, yes. I don't like this space, I don't want this space, I don't understand this space, but I will trust you in this space. Second best prayer. (laughs) I don't like this space, understand this space, want this space. Help me to trust you in this space, because right now I don't even know what it looks like. I don't trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust you each day, day after day after day after day. Like that Roman soldier who emerges from the pages as this model of trust in a crisis. My hope for you today, particularly if you're in the middle of a family mess, relational mess, work challenge, health crisis, is that as you walk out of our rooms into a vehicle that you would just something in your heart would go, Lord, help me trust you more. I'm walking with you even right now. Help me trust you you more. That's what I'll pray for as we close today. Let me ask you to stand here and in our other spaces and I get to pray for us as we move into our weeks. Uh, Gracious God, I just want to begin by saying thank you that this story got recorded by your servant Luke, a story of a Roman soldier that trusted you. May we become day by day people of trust. May we believe that you care, that you see, that you know and you desire to be the God who provides, may we trust you more day by day. We ask this in the name of Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.